0: Lord, thank you for the beauty of this day. Thank you for um, reminders of new life and uh, reminders of a coming summer. Um, We celebrate your goodness in the chains, the paper chains that are on the side of this wall, and we look forward to remembering the good things that you do and that you are. Um, Bless the children as they worship and study today. Um, Help us to be attentive to your voice, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I know we're working on a series of who is God and what is he like. And I was asked to speak on um, the goodness of God. God is good. And I remember thinking um, of a friend of mine named Kathy. Uh, Kathy worked with Nurses Christian Fellowship for many years. And Kathy was one of the people who, when you meet her, you just go, she is so nice and such a good person. And I remember I mentioned that to her one time. I think it may have been during a work anniversary. We were doing tributes. And she said, you know, I hate being called nice. Nice. And I, and I said, why? You know, many of us would be very grateful to be thought of as nice. And she said, because it just seems nice and good, just seems so bland, she said. And there is that problem, right, that when you um, watch a movie or you read a book, so frequently the villain is so much more interesting than the hero right? Um, C.S. Lewis wrestles with this in his preface to Paradise Lost. He says, you know, the problem, of course, with Paradise Lost is Satan is almost more interesting than any of the major characters there, and so he almost becomes the hero, at least in terms of where you are emotionally. And when you think of good people, you think of, uh, you rarely use that to describe people, right? Other than, we think about it as dogs, right? Good boy, good boy. Or you think about children being good when they do something that you like, or, If you watch The Wizard of Oz, you think of Glinda the Good who drifts in, offers some advice, then drifts back out till everything is done, right? Good doesn't seem to have a lot of kind of robust energy about it. And yet, systemically and consistently throughout scripture, God is described as good. And so what does it mean that good is not just seen as a static, dull characteristic of niceness at some level or just... He's not bad, but actually a robust vision of who God is. And so um, I thought we could look at Psalm 145. It's the last of the Psalms of David in the Psalter, Psalm 145. And it's a reflection on the goodness of God. And so let me read it for us. And I want you to pay attention as we do the vibrant, dynamic ways that God's goodness is expressed or explained in this passage. Uh, Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He is compassionate on all that He has made. All you have made will praise you, Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to his promise and loving toward all that he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all that he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. The psalm starts out right with David saying, I'm going to praise the Lord. I will exalt you, my God and King. I will praise your name forever and ever. And if you're familiar with the psalms, you know David was pretty exuberant and pretty energetic. So this should come as no shock, right? And actually, these are the kind of psalms we like. They're kind of pick-me-ups when you're feeling a bit down. What struck me, particularly because of the um, uh, intergenerational Sunday school announcement, was this line. And I've loved this line. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. That the experience of God's goodness is so overwhelming, it's not just that you enjoy them for yourself, but that you actually communicate them one generation to another. And I want to pause there, because um, as... I can't remember who was talking about it. um, The Intergenerational Sunday School that... Kathy, that's right. Sorry, as as she was saying, right. So often when we get into church, we divide up by age, and obviously there's important reasons for that, right? You can be more pedagogically appropriate for a child. It allows us as adults to wrestle with certain things, and if you're in the middle, you're actually beginning to transition. But what strikes me is that there is a completeness, a healthiness about the experience of praise and exp- and um, worshiping God when one generation explains to another the goodness of God that we see. Particularly, I think, for younger folk to hear from people who are older how they've seen God to be faithful. Um, I think of a study done by Fuller Theological Seminary uh, called Sticky Faith, and they tried to examine what are the markers that um, distinguish students who grow up at church or come to faith in high school, who retain their faith in their college years, and they said there were a number of key markers. One of which was teaching about grace, not just behavior. Uh, because if all you do is teach, don't do these bad things, when they inevitably do the bad things, they have no way to say, "I knew this was going to happen, and I know I can still turn to God and trust Him." Right? And so, and so often, when with children, we're really just working on behavior issues, but at some point in high school, the issue has to turn from behavior control to uh, actually understanding failure and grace. They said the other and the most surprising uh, factor was high school students who have vibrant relationships with adults other than their parents in the context of faith. And they said it couldn't be just a youth pastor, though that was helpful, but it was actually young adults, high school kids, who knew several other adults who were investing in them, speaking to them, and introducing the faith that that was a key marker that went um that surprised them as they did their research but uh a significant number of the children who became went to college who said what were the factors that really have helped keep you in their faith?" they said i saw my parents live out their faith and i saw other adults live out their faith and the other adults told me about what they had experienced and i think the reason this is helpful is because Um, When you're in high school and when you're in college, and for many of us, um, bad days are difficult, bad weeks seem endless, and a bad month is an eternity. The advantage that those of us who are older now have is to be able to say, in that bad year or bad decade, I've continued to see the faithfulness of God. I had a colleague named Don Fields. Don was in his 70s, still discipling students, and students would line up to meet with Don. And we always used to wonder you know, Don, what's your secret? So I remember one uh, week at camp, I, I sat down and I were sitting and I said, Don, what do you do to keep current and to be able to address the needs of students now? And he said, Greg, and he was kind of from the uh, kind of southern Indiana, so he had a little bit of a drawl, which I won't try to do. He Greg, nobody's meeting with me because I know what music they're listening to. I have no idea. I don't care. He said, what I do is I sit down with these students and I just say, we're going to study scripture together. And I look like your grandfather, but I want you to know I've discipled thousands of students. There is nothing you will say that shocks me. I'm committed to loving you and loving Jesus. So share with me anything you want, and I'm going to choose to love you, and then let's study Scripture together. And he said, I know it's, you know, we can be honest, right, because I'm older than your parents at this point. Um, I've seen bad decades with Jesus, or I've really struggled. Let's just talk. And literally up until he was about 75, when he finally retired, retired, um, students would be lining up in the cafeteria. There'd be one student studying the scripture with him, and then three or four students just hanging in the background for that Bible study to be over so they could go talk to Don. Um, And I think what was compelling for those students was to have somebody who wasn't their parent, right, which is often key in that high school, college age, sharing authentically what they've experienced about God's goodness and God's faithfulness over time. I know when I was in college... My mom, probably feeling a little desperate, organized the parents at the church to be prayer prayer parents for somebody else's child. And so Mrs. Huang became my prayer parent all through college, so every birthday and randomly through the year, she'd send me a note or a card. We didn't, right, this is pre-email, so it had to be a note or a card. And there was something vibrant and critical for me to get a letter from a person who was not my parent who had no obligation to me other than the bonds we had in the body of Christ, saying, Greg, I'm proud of you, I love you, and I am praying for you. For you all, perhaps one way to live out Psalm 145 might be to engage in that intergenerational Bible Sunday school for a week or two, not just because of what we offer um, the young people or the children, but actually, I think it's critical for those of us who are aging to experience seeing scripture through new eyes, right? There's something beautiful, Cheryl's saying, of I've been studying scripture now for 30 plus years and I see its richness and I know God's faithfulness. And there's another thing entirely, to watch a child hear the stories of Jesus for the first or second time. To see with new eyes, their surprise. He said that? What was that story about? And then for us to begin to experience that excitement and freshness for a new thing, that that renews our soul. And I think part of what the psalmist is saying right, is one generation will proclaim to another for the encouragement of their own faith and have their own faith renewed, right? To have that chain extend generation after generation tangibly with us helps us experience the goodness of God. So what does God's goodness look like In verse 7, it gives you a clue, right? I will celebrate your abundant goodness, that when we talk about God's goodness, it's not just that he does good things, but there's an abundance, an overflow of God's goodness. The challenge, of course, is most of us don't see it every day. We're so tied up in the ordinary tasks of living and working and managing our families and managing ourselves that often... um, if we were to say, what are you thankful for right now, we would scratch our heads. Unless we're attentive. And I want to suggest the rest of the psalm gives us a number of ways to be attentive to the goodness of God so that inadvertently we don't steal God of the glory that he's due or cheat ourselves out of an opportunity to be thankful. Because I don't know about you, but I know in my own human relationships when I'm in a posture of thankfulness, Um, I'm free to love. I'm free to ask for forgiveness. I'm free to become the kind of person I want to be. But when I'm distracted, um, when I'm self-sufficient and don't think I need to thank people for things, um, I actually do become very self-centered in those moments. But my dependency on other people opens my heart. So what's God's goodness look like? In verses 8 through 14, I want to suggest... um, it's that the Lord extends mercy to those who need it. Look again at those verses. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all, and he is compassionate on all that he has made. And if, you, if that first verse in verse 8 caught your attention, you're like, I know I've heard that somewhere before. Is it just in the Psalms? Listen again. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. What's God's goodness like? This is a a direct quote from Exodus 34, 4 through 6. You might remember as Moses is up on the mountain, receiving the Ten Commandments, he says to the Lord, show me your glory. I know you said you'd go with us, but who are you? Show me who you are. Give me your name so that we, your people, will know who you are and we can follow you. Show me something of your glory which will help me endure being with these people that you've put me with. Right? Show me something of your glory so that I can lead these people through the, um, the wilderness. And God says, okay, I will show you my glory, but you need to hide yourself in the rock because if you saw my face, it would be so overwhelming to you, you'd be destroyed. I'll let you just see my back. And I'm not quite sure what that is. Like, I, I keep trying to imagine what that's like. But more, right? I'll give you a glimpse of who I am. You'll just catch it on the side, Moses. And then when the Lord comes, right, there's um, the, the mountain shakes, there's a huge wind. And then the Lord declares his name. I am the Lord, the Lord, right? Yahweh, I am who I am, who I will be. And then he describes his name in this way. I am the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. When the Lord says, who am I? Who do I want you to know me to be? What's the fullness of my character? It's this verse. I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And then at the end of the chapter, I will punish those who deserve punishing, but I will forgive generously and completely. Part of God's goodness, I want to suggest, by invoking Exodus um, 34, 4 through 6, is part of God's goodness is that he revealed himself to us. We know who he is and what he's like. Imagine being the kind of people that Paul describes in Acts 20, right, to the Athenians. You worship a God that you do not know. You have to put up an altar to the unknown God because you're afraid you're going to miss something. Can you imagine what it would be like to not know the kind of God that you worship? To just hope that you were doing the right thing? To hope that the things that you do were pleasing to him or interesting to him or not frustrating to him? Imagine groping in the dark constantly. And actually, many of us don't have to imagine that, right? Um, For those of us who came to faith later, we know that experience when you think there may be something out there, there, but you can't name it, and you don't know it. For others of us, we wandered. Uh, We may have come to faith earlier, but there have been periods of our life where we've walked away, and we remember that feeling of, maybe there's something out there I just don't know. Part of the goodness of God. david draws on here is god has revealed himself to us we know his name we know what he's like we know that he's dependable who is he he says i am who i am i am gracious and compassionate and this is good and then the psalmist goes on to say right um all you have made um Will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Um, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. I think when David quotes um, Exodus 34, he says, that, that way people will know of your mighty acts. If you're in and immersed in the Old Testament, If you're going to bring in words from the Exodus and talk about God's mighty acts, when you talk about God's mighty acts, it's primarily speaking about the Exodus experience, right? What do we know about God's goodness? We know that he's merciful, and how is that demonstrated? He saves Israel out of slavery and judges Egypt, right? He brings, um, he triumphs over the false gods of Egypt by demonstrating that he's in control and command. Um, systematically demonstrating that over every area of Egyptian life that they thought their gods could control, the weather, the Nile, the animals, and the birds, God overruled them all. And it's his care and provision in bringing them into the promised land. And so when you talk about God's mighty acts, right, when they're like, what is this God like? How do we know his goodness? He saved you out of slavery. David's reminding you, he defeated your enemies, He kept you safe for 40 years of wandering and brought you into the place that you needed to be, into a land flowing with milk and honey. God is good. I think it's fascinating that during the civil rights movement, the African-American church anchored itself to this particular story in scripture, right? It was the Exodus story that gave them hope. It was the Exodus story which reminded them that God was good in the midst of um, extreme oppression, violence, and danger. It was the Exodus story and reminding themselves that God was good that allowed them to endure in places of hardship and persecution. And what did it give them? It gave them faith, right? It gave the African-American church and the entire civil rights movement confidence that evil would be defeated, that righteousness would be expressed that peace could occur. Why? Not because the movement in itself was powerful, not because it had powerful speakers like Martin Luther King, whose death anniversary we just celebrated as a country. They had confidence, not because history bends towards some arc of justice on its own, but because God is good, that God would care for them, God would speak, and that God would act. This is quite in contrast between other narratives which use the exodus as I'm just passing through this land, crossing over to the Jordan, trying to escape the world that we're in. I want to suggest that a deep immersion in the goodness of God, as you immerse yourself in this scriptural story, it actually allows us to persevere. It allows us to suffer, not silently, but clearly. That actually proclaiming the goodness of God is a potential wild act of protest in a world that may be filled with despair. That's why, right, in many traditions, people will say God is good, and the expectation is the congregation will say all the time, right? In pleasant seasons or unpleasant seasons, in difficulty or in ease, when under persecution or while being blessed, we affirm God is good. We may not experience it helpably at the time. We may mostly experience danger or darkness, pain or suffering. Absolutely. But the assertion that God is good is not a kind of gentle, isn't he nice? It's a desperate cry, grasping for a deeper reality to ground ourselves in, to give us the strength to continue to do what we need to do. So how do we as a people immerse ourselves in that Narratives so deeply and so thoroughly that it shapes the way we approach our days. Because otherwise, the narrative that we use to uh, anchor our days will be determined by social media, for those of us who peruse that, um, by the various pundits on the various cable networks through which we receive our news, through the narratives of our family or our own dysfunctions. I was uh, at a conference on Monday, and they said, you know, the challenge for most pastors is that um, we get 30 minutes to preach and shape the imaginations of our congregation, and then they go back home, and it's the average two hours a day of Fox News or MSNBC or CNN, so that for an hour and a half, we have here to try to combat alternative narratives about what the world is like for the rest of your days. How will we immerse ourselves in scripture? I, I love the chain that Children are building, if only to remind us of what it takes to hold us together. The psalm goes on to say um, in verse 14, The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts all who are bowed down. And I want to suggest that though it's written in the Old Testament, at least for me, maybe it's because I just use the metaphor that way so frequently, when I think about how the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts all who are bowed down, um, I do begin to think toward the future of the Old Testament into the cross, don't you? Um, When we were fallen, when we were bowed down, um, through his own mercy, uh, Jesus manifested himself. So if part of God's goodness is the way, the abundance through which he uh, expresses his mercy, it's also his generosity in providing when we need it, verses 15 through 16. Um, The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. It almost seems to be saying, if God is good in the acts of salvation, right? these grand scriptural narratives, he's also good in creation, the very palpable, practical ways that we live. Humanity and animal, every living thing, plant um, or fungus, experiences his goodness as he provides for them and feeds them as necessary and as needed. Um, Theologian J.I. Packer puts it this way, the psalmist's point is that since God controls all that happens in his world, every meal, every pleasure, every possession, every bit of sun, particularly for those of us in the north, every bit of sun, every night's sleep, every moment of health and safety, everything else that sustains and enriches life is a divine gift from God. Um, this is quite a challenge for us, I think, in the United States, in part because... Um, the, the line between the packaged goods, which actually provide most of the food I eat, right, um, to God's hand feels quite distant at times. Uh, I had a friend who was a, a teacher at a high school one time, and she said, you know, they were talking about milk and, you know, no, she was elementary school, she was doing student teaching, she said, you know, where does milk come from? And the student said, the grocery store. And she's like, no, no, it comes from a cow. And the children are like, no. (laughs) There's no way we're drinking milk from an animal. And she's like, okay, we have some work to do here, right? But the distance between experiencing God's provision and our actual experience of life can be quite distant for us. Um, And yet, it's incumbent upon us to pay attention to that, to see God's goodness. I want to suggest that's really why we need to pray before meals. As dull as it is, right? Because you eat like three times a day. um, Or if you snack a lot, maybe four or five, right? Um, But I think the reason we play is not to placate God. Like if we don't thank God, he's just going to be really angry. It's our way with every meal to remind ourselves this is from God. And I think for those of us... In the affluent West, this is particularly critical because it's easy to think this is from IBM or it's from the county, um, right, our county job or the local school or wherever you work. Um, But we have to remind ourselves this is of God. The reason I wrestle with this personally is I remember um, going on a missions trip to China with IntraVarsity. And as I was walking around these towns, which were poverty stricken, I saw um, young adults my age. This was um, right in the middle of law school for me. And I remember seeing them, right? They would be selling fruit behind small little counters trying to make some money. And I realized my pocket change was more than they were going to earn in a day or maybe even a week. And I had to wrestle with the reality, am I a privileged law student coming to this country on a missions trip because of my own hard work and effort? Can I really attribute it merely to the fact that my parents and my grandparents struggled and worked very hard to give me the opportunities I had? And if I was going to say yes, was I willing to make the argument that that young person I saw across the street was actually working less hard than I was? Were their parents really so much less industrious and less hardworking than my own parents? Or was it a tremendous gift of grace that my educational opportunities that I was able to take advantage of and the presumption that I would have food every day and a home over my head were those not all acts of grace from God, which could be lost if I wasn't a good steward and certainly could be improved upon if I was, but ultimately and in the end, could I say, oh, it's just because we worked harder than them and I saw how hard they were working and how little they had and I was humbled. It's partially one of the reasons why Um, As I pray for my meals, my daughter, I'm sure, will say, as well as any friends who eat with me regularly, I have the same really dull prayer, which tends to be something like, Father, thank you for this food. Um, And then immediately what I try to remind myself, um, show mercy. And usually, especially if you're at a restaurant, thank you for the fact that I can choose what to eat. I chose where to eat today, and I have the freedom to choose not to eat, and it will not affect my health and, in fact, may improve it. And then would you show mercy to those who have no choices like that today? Would you show mercy to those who don't eat with somebody who enjoys them and loves them but eat alone, not out of choice? And then would you help me be responsible for the choices and the privileges that I have? Amen. Um, It strikes me that until I do that, um, I cannot remember on a daily basis that everything that I have comes from God that he provides generously. But it's a tangible reminder. It was being in China that reminded me, um, because you still have to boil water there. You cannot drink it from the tap. As many of us who grew up in earlier places and times knew, right, tap water, you boil first, so you always had to drink boiling water. And I just realized, growing up in the United States, if I saw a spigot in the middle of a forest, I would assume I could drink it. And what a privilege the assumption of clean drinking water is that most people in the world never enjoy. What can we do on a daily, regular basis to be attentive to God's goodness? One of the things that I do, and part of this is um, during my quiet time, uh, during the, I just write a list of what I was thankful for in the prior 24 hours. And I really struggled when I first started this practice because I don't experience dramatic goodness all the time. But it occurred to me by forcing myself to find five to ten things every day, however picayune, however quotidian, however dull, was a good act of reminding myself of God's goodness. So some days it really just is. Uh, I have pen and paper today to write these things down and other people don't. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that I don't have to work so hard or so long that I cannot take five minutes to make this list. Thank you that I ate a breakfast. I did not enjoy it, but I am nourished. Right? What, however small it is, shapes my heart in a particular way to see God's goodness and part of what you do when you do that part of why this chain is important and why every month it's worth doing is until we attune ourselves to become attentive to it we become dull to God's goodness and then we begin to doubt it or ignore it until we actually train ourselves to look for these things we will not pay attention because what most of our culture does is try to explain to you how dissatisfied you are with the world right? Every advertisement, every TV program, every song tries to convince you, you should be dissatisfied with the way that you look. You don't look the way that you should. You don't smell the way you should. You don't live the way you should. You don't drive the car that you should, right? You aren't living the life that you should have, and certainly you won't retire the way you should, and all of that um, presses against the reality and what we need to be attentive to. God is good, And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to improve our place or position, but it means that we start from a posture of God's goodness, which I think allows us not to grasp or grab for it, which turns us into the kind of people we want to avoid, the kind of people that are not described well in scripture, but instead to approach our futures however they are with a deep sense of open-handedness and um, a reduction of our fear. Right? It's what Jesus said, if I've already fed all the animals out there, do you not think I will take care of you in the Sermon on the Mount? Finally, um, it's not just that the Lord physically provides generously those who needs it and saves us when we need saving. It's, he really does aid those who need him. Look again at verses 17 through 20. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. I just want to land in two things. I I love the promise, right? Out of God's goodness, out of his abundant generosity, he will give. He will fulfill the desires of those who, fu- who fear him. Now, that could be seen, and I think probably is mistaken often, as like, name it and claim it, right? Whatever you want, uh, you can ask for, and God will give it to you. And I think the key factor here is, God will give, um, the Lord will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. When your heart is aligned around the fear of God, right? When it's aligned around his purposes, goals, and priorities, and you're engaged in his mission, when you've allowed your heart to be shaped by the grandeur and majesty and the hope of God, then, of course, he will give you what he wants, what you ask for, because what you want is generally what he would like to give you. Right? Um, My children know, um, I am most likely to give them things when they ask for things that I already want to give them. And so they're wise to align their interests with mine and their passions with mine. So my children know if they approach me and my wife and say, can we get a book at the bookstore today? Nine times out of 10, the answer will be, yeah, let's do it, right? Because um, we like uh, buying books. just makes me deliriously happy. And I like the fact that my children read. I think we all know that experience, right? Um, And when we fear the Lord, when we think, May your kingdom come and your will be done. God goes, I'm happy to do that, right? Glorify yourself in my workplace, and my home, Lord, because I am not being a good witness right now. You know, the Lord's like, I'm there. <laughs> like, I've been waiting for you to pray that prayer. Lord, um, would you use the blessing box to ensure that people in our community have the basic necessities they need? And would you discipline me to do it with a little less so that other people have enough? The Lord says, of course I would be delighted to do that, because now you're sounding like my people. Now you're sounding like my church. And the Lord, in his goodness, delights in answering our prayers. They're not futile. And then the psalmist goes on to say this odd thing. It's the one dark note in the entire psalm, right, at the end of verse 20, but the wicked he will destroy. Why this one dissonant note? in a psalm so filled with praise and goodness and joy and abundance, I think it's because most of us, we're really distant from the realities of wickedness that it doesn't occur to us why this needs to be here. Um, Because generally, we're nice people in a very nice community filled with other nice people. Um, But I think it adds a note of bracing reality for those of us who pray the psalm and who want to thank God for his goodness. Um, I may have told the story here before, but um, I had a friend uh, named Ina, and at, when I was in Chicago, um, often I would do a pastoral prayer, you know, we'd bring various people up. And uh, we were at lunch after church. Uh, it was an Asian church, so we often ate lunch together, and um, because, you know, it's all about the food. And we were eating, and Ina was across from me, and she I still remember the restaurant. She looked at me and said, Greg, your prayers bum me out so much. And I was like, Okay, you know, but that's, that's not really the goal that you have for prayer when you pray for the, in front of the church. Like, yeah, that, that totally ruined my day and so And I said, why? And she said, you know, I come to church and I want to be uplifted by the sermon and encouraged by the music and, and and you know, enervated by the fellowship. And then you come up with your pastoral prayer and you're like... Lord, we know that during this worship service, nine people will try to commit suicide. 1,500 people will be dying of hunger. And she's like, man, you just pop the worship balloon for me. Like, I'm more discouraged listening after you've prayed than I was walking in the church. Why do you do that to me? I didn't have a good answer, so I I put another bite of food in my mouth to buy time. And as I chewed, what I told Ina was this. um, I swallowed first. Um, You know, Ina... um, I do believe God is good. I do believe his love endures forever. And I also know these other facts are true. And if I'm going to sing about God's goodness and that he's been good to me and not actually think about the people who've not experienced that goodness in the same thoroughgoing way, then really Karl Marx was right, right? Religion really is the opiate of the masses. It's being used to dull us to the needs of the world. Um, If I can't say God is good Um, all the time and think about people, my brothers and sisters around the world, suffering from persecution, then what do I really mean by the fact that God is good? All I really mean is he's good to me, and my pursuit of him is selfish and narrow. right? But if by an act of sanctified imagination I can say, I believe he's good, and I know there's suffering and persecution and pain in the world and in our congregation in our own lives, and hold those two in tension, then actually my faith has a fighting chance to... shape the world I live in, right? My faith actually is not denying reality, but fully engaged with it in its persecutions and disruptions, despair um, and disgust. I think it's really interesting that Psalm 145 is the most quoted psalm in most Jewish prayers. And I think maybe one of the reasons why is for people who've experienced persecution, for people who have been marginalized, who've been without a home, to be, re, to be reminded both of God's goodness as 97% of the psalm, but to believe that God's justice will prevail is actually good, good news, right? If you're a person for whom Me Too and Church Too describes your experience, then God's justice is good news, right? If you've been persecuted because of um, your gender or ethnicity or another category, to know that God will bring about justice is good news. If you've been defrauded, hurt or harmed by the people around you. To know that God will judge wickedness is good news. It frees us from having to believe that we have to hold revenge in our own hands. It allows us to open-handedly begin to talk about words like prayer and reconciliation and forgiveness without spitting them out in anger. It allows us to love our enemies and to care for those who persecute us in ways that cause people around us to go, there must be a God if they're going to respond that way. For most of us, we don't think of God's judgment as good news. But if you've been a person who's experienced wickedness, then belief that God himself will take care of the problems of injustice is very good news indeed. Let me end with this way. The psalm is an acrostic, like several of the psalms. um, Every verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, And I think David does this in part because um, it's a way of saying this psalm sums it up everything's included. Well, actually, weirdly, there's one letter missing, and nobody knows why, but it may be to say, uh, God is good, and the world's a little incomplete, and it's still going to be okay. But I think when you know that God is this good, um, it allows you to trust and to hope. Walter Brueggemann described it this way, um, the one with looking eyes and hopeful hands and yearning desire does nothing, produces nothing, earns nothing, manipulates nothing, possesses nothing, only gladly, trustingly receives because God is good. Let me pray. Lord, um, So, in so much of my life, um, I would like to be good enough or to do good or to be good. Um, what a relief for me to be reminded that ultimately you are the one who is good and I can trust on that and rest in that so that I don't have to do good enough, be good enough, um, or experience good enough, but you are enough. Um, may I grow smaller in my own eyes, Lord, so that your grandeur, goodness, mercy, love, wrath, and grace um grow bigger in my own eyes so that we could right-size my world and then I could trust you and love you more.